Welcome back, everybody, to The Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Thursday. Let's dive in. Well, what I have for you is such a wild interview with Republican Congressman George Santos, who is well known now for his serial lying tendencies. And this interview is truly bonkers. The way he tries to explain away the lies he's told and just frame this all in a very strange way. So with that being said, so many clips to go through from it. Let's dive into the first. For having me, Caitlin, I think it's important that America under and this is on one America news stands, you know, that a lot can be said, a lot can be done, but that people should be judged on their actions and not by trial by fire through the media, which is what I've experienced for the last couple of weeks. Um, as you noted in your opening, you, you said that uh, politicians have broken the fabric of trust with the American people. But that trust has been broken through betrayal in elections when they campaign on certain issues. And when they go into their offices, they behave and act and vote and deliver completely opposite of what they promised during the electoral process. So that's more so what I believe you're re referencing to and to what the American people has learned to feel. So he's talking about the way in which politicians have lost the trust of the American people as one of the individuals who is quite literally only as famous as he is because of his dishonesty. And then you'll notice throughout this whole interview and elsewhere, he's definitely trying to go with the narrative that he's a victim of the horrible treatment of the media, which is wild because all they're doing, the media, is asking him about the lies he's told or pressing him on possible criminality in regard to the financing of his elections. They're not treating him unfairly in any way. Next moment here. The business of politics is, is littered at the highest levels with deceit, mistruth, corruption, of course, and this is kind of the time that you're now entering politics. So with that climate in mind, um, I guess, where do you want to start in your, in your story, your, your upbringing maybe? Well, Caitlin, look, I come from a humble beginning. I've always said that. I grew up in abject poverty uh, in Jackson Heights in Queens in New York City. Uh, people like me aren't supposed to do big things in life. And when we do, it disrupts the system. And I know that a lot of people want to create this narrative that I, I faked my way to Congress, which is absolutely categorically false. Then what did you do, sir? That's exactly what you did. Uh, we'll finish it and then I'll respond. Um, I've worked hard. I've built ground up a career. Um, through experience and through knowledge and through self-education. Uh, and, you know, I think it's amazing that I have to sit here and be spoken down to on a regular basis, yet again, by the media. Oh, you poor victim. Okay, so he's trying to make this point that maybe the reason why everyone thinks that I'm as bad as I am is because I came from humble beginnings. And the American media just cannot handle someone who built themselves up from humble beginnings. What are you talking about? There are so many amazing democratic, amazing compared to you democratic Congress people who started very similar to you financially and got to incredible places. That's not something that the left doesn't like. Actually, I think the left celebrates that a ton. 
And the media doesn't have some inherent issue with somebody who started low income and then ended up becoming successful. That's a great story. The reason why we don't like your story is because it's fake. That's why we don't like your story, George Santos. Um, and then we will watch this next moment here. It just gets more wild and more wild as it goes along. History has shown that the American people can pretty much forgive anything. But that starts with a sincere apology normally, a lot of remorse shown. Prevailing opinion is you have not yet shown that. You know, I, I don't know what you mean by that because I have well, shown... Well, you, you seem angry. You seem angry. I'm not angry. angry. I'm not angry at all. I'm... Are you sorry? I've been... I've said I was sorry many times. I've behaved as if I'm sorry. Look, if, if you're... This is a classic dishonest tactic. You give kind of a half apology, but just a bunch of excuses so that later you can say, I already apologized. Jeez. If you want to compare uh, emotions, people show emotions differently. I am sorry. I'm deeply sorry. I've I fielded calls. I've been calling supporters to apologize directly to them for that. And, you know, I don't know what what is asked of me right now when you ask oh, you have not shown remorse or you don't seem to look sorry. I don't know what looking sorry looks like to you, Caitlin. I can tell you what looking sorry, what looking remorseful would look like. Resigning. If you lie your way into a position of power, tell a fake story to your constituents or at that point to be constituents and then they become your constituents and you actually are remorseful about doing that, then you would show that remorse through resi resigning and not holding the position of power that you got so dishonestly. Take a look at this next moment. Look, Joe Biden is a 40-year-long career patholog pathological liar. He's the president of the United States. That does not make it okay to lie. And I've learned my lesson, and you can guarantee, I can guarantee you that from now on, anything and everything is always going to be above board. It's largely always been above board. I'm just going to go the extra step now to double check, cross-reference everything. Look, Joe Biden is a... As if what caused him to tell all those lies was not double-checking, cross-checking, triple-checking the things he was about to say. In the future, I, I made some minor mistakes in the past. In the future, I will make a list, check it twice before I say anything, and that will prevent me from being a pathological liar. No, clearly the only thing you're actually remorseful about, the only thing you're gonna to try to do better in the future is lie, excuse me, lie better, is you're remorseful that you got caught. And that's probably the only thing that is bothering you. Where do you draw the line between right and wrong? And as a public office holder, is there any scenario in which you feel it is okay to lie? No, I don't think lying is excusable ever, period, right? There's no circumstance, especially if you're legislating for the American people right now. So what I might have done during the campaign, does what you did do does not reflect what is being done in the office. Where do you draw the line? <laughs> what? This is really happening right now in American politics. Just lie completely, make up 
a fake story about who you are. You get into office and go, no, but see, that was the campaign. That forget about that. Now I'm actually in office. Things are different. And I'm a good guy now. So the question was, is lying ever okay? Clearly he thinks lying is wonderful, better than telling the truth. It seems he lies about more than he tells the truth about. But I won't even go that far. Sometimes, as I've said in the past, if a family member comes to you and says, do I look good in this outfit? Occasionally you gotta lie. <laughs> Besides that, um, especially when campaigning, lying should not be as easy as it is for George Santos. But unfortunately, it is all too common. And then this strange moment. What would you say, George, that you would have done differently? I wouldn't have lied about the education. I wouldn't have. I would have just fought like hell to get that nomination and to be the But in, in that same sentence, you've also said that you don't believe you would be sitting in this chair right now as Congressman George Santos if you didn't lie. It's it's catch twenty two. But if I can do it all over again, I would change that one aspect and I just fight harder. It's a catch twenty two. If I have one regret, it's I shouldn't have lied about the education. That's a great tactic on his part. If I was his strategist, pick one of the things and go. I shouldn't have lied about that one thing, because then if you're not keeping up with it a ton or just you kind of forget, you go. Oh, it sounds like he lied about his education. That's not great, but not the end of the world. Okay, do you also regret lying that your parents both were down there at 9-11 but survived and then also lying that your mom died at 9-11 even though she wasn't even in the country at the time? That you have uh, descendants who are Holocaust survivors? That you did all these different things in business that you didn't do? And on and on and on. It's not just the education. You lied about so much more than that. And then final moment we'll take a look at. George, I'm in the business, as you know, unlike some, not for decades, but I have also come into it at a time where the level of corruption and the degree to which politicians get away with lying, they have, this has all been highlighted recently. So with this climate in mind, given the number of scandaled, plagued politicians that get away unscathed, do you think this was in the back of your head at all? So we'll let him answer, but you can tell how much of a softball interview it is. She actually, this host did press him on a few things throughout the interview, but the framing of the question is because so many politicians are dishonest, is that part of why you felt like you were allowed to be dishonest? All? No, honestly, no. When it came to light, I, I, I sat there and I said, damn it. George Santos, good mm. luck Thank and you. Godspeed. Thank you. <laughs> what a strange, strange interview. Even when he goes on OAN and um, is supposed to look good, he still can't be saved and it looks absolutely terrible. And I can't even come up with a way that it could have gone better because the only honest high integrity move in this situation would be to resign. That would be the option for you. You don't have any other options to look like you actually care about the fact that you just scammed the voters of New York's third district to get yourself into power. And every day that goes on, every uh, you know observation we're gonna have of him holding that power is just a reminder of how dishonest of a human being 
George Santos is. Well, Bernie Sanders had a good moment on MSNBC where he explained a little bit more about the debt ceiling negotiation with the Republican Party and Social Security, their ambition to cut Social Security and how there are real solutions that are better, better than that that we could be discussing. Uh, these guys over in the House, some of them, not all, uh, think that the solution is at a time when so many seniors, we don't talk about this enough. You got people who are trying to make it on Social Security $15,000, $18,000 a year. You can't. So the solution is not what some Republicans want to cut Social Security. The solution is to lift the cap on taxable income coming into the trust fund. Right now, you have an insane, really absurd situation. Person X makes $10 million a year. Person Y makes $160,000 a year. Both contribute exactly the same amount of money into the Social Security Trust Fund. If you lift that cap, as our legislation proposes, start at $250,000, you will have Social Security solvent for the next 75 years, solves the problem entirely, and raise benefits for lower income seniors. So that's right. these guys over. So he outlined a specific proposal, but the general answer so often to the question of how do we save social security is relatively simple. The framing of the argument from the right is trying to really oversimplify the conversation in a dishonest, I would say, direction. So it's saying we're out of money, we got to cut something. Imagine if Social Security costs $10 and we only have nine, we got to cut that $1 without putting forward the understanding that we could get that dollar if we would like to spend on Social Security. We could get more money for the government to spend um, on Social Security, on something that people have paid into and deserve. And so there, Bernie Sanders is outlining a proposal that does what I've been talking about for so long now, which is the simple answer. There are so many at the very top who do not pay anywhere close to how much they should in taxes. And as I've said before, it's actually at this point in time, not even a conversation about raising any rate because the rates on paper are way above what billionaires, for example, actually end up paying in effective taxes. We've seen the analysis done where the top most richest people in the world will pay a single digit tax rate, sometimes one, two percent or less in effective taxes. And so if we could fix the way that we obtain those tax dollars and actually get the proper amount that we should already be getting, then we wouldn't have to have any discussion that and other initiatives similar. Um, for example, the way that Biden has funded the IRS so they can go after tax cheats at the very top who aren't paying how much they should, a number of different things. And then we could also talk about tax rate increases on the wealthy if that was also necessary for this particular program. And so there's ways to not even have to worry about harming the benefits that individuals get through Medicare, Social Security, and other entitlements. But Republicans don't want to have that discussion because often it comes back to, as you're seeing here, a discussion of more reasonably taxing the wealthiest and they don't want to tax the wealthiest individuals in the United States because their job is to protect those people and make, as I say so often, the powerful even more powerful. Great moment there from Bernie Sanders. Let me know what you think. Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Hakeem Jeffries responded 
to this proposal, this resolution that was put forward and passed by the Republican Party and the House of Representatives to condemn the horrors of socialism across the world and history. And there have been so many horrible leaders, horrible governments that have labeled themselves or been labeled socialist that I would be very happy condemning, 100%. The purpose of this resolution is not to have an honest conversation about governments that have been socialist in name governments, right, that have done horrible things. The purpose of this is to try to fearmonger about that socialism, that type of socialism coming to America and the way that AOC is pushing that socialism and the way that um, Joe Biden is a horrible communist, globalist, socialist, fascist. That's the purpose to raise this up as a pressing issue, which it's not in the United States because we don't have any uh, communist leaders within our government right now, as they pretend Joe Biden is. Um, and then use that recognition of a problem that doesn't exist in the United States right now to further attack the other side. That's the idea. It's a big problem. And Biden is a part of that problem is the initiative here, at least from my perspective. And Hakeem Jeffries nicely points out why the Democratic Party is not going to go along with this theater. Take a look. Show us your plan. Instead, they bring to the floor of the House of Representatives today a resolution on socialism to condemn some dictators that we all condemn. But understand, the goal of this phony, fake, and fraudulent resolution is just to somehow provide cover for extreme MAGA Republicans to try to undermine an agenda that is designed to lift up the health, safety, and well-being of the American people. Why do we know this? Because going all the way back to the days of FDR, through Harry Truman, into President Kennedy, through President Johnson, all the way up until President Clinton and President Obama and President Biden. They've called things like Social Security, Socialism, Medicare, Socialism. Stream MAGA Republicans have called Public Education, Socialism, Medicaid, Socialism, the Affordable Care Act, Socialism, the American Rescue Plan, Socialism. So the American people should not be fooled by anything that takes place on the floor today with respect to this so-called resolution on socialism. Right. So if you can say, I need everyone, because the point of this, right, is to get on paper Democrats not voting in favor of the condemnation of socialism and all of its horrors. But the point is to bring that up as an issue to say, see, all of these programs Democrats push for now also are the same thing as horrible dictators in the past, which is so dishonest because as Hakeem Jeffries highlighted there, since the beginning of this as an attack, it's been used to go after quite necessary, reasonable and popular pieces of legislation and programs that would help the American people. And 
what they do is a very illogical thought process. The things we don't like that the government does is socialism. If you support those things, you are a socialist, just like the worst dictators we can think up. And then the programs that they're okay with, they don't want to speak out against. Well, that's not bad socialism. So everything under the sun has been called socialism, but now they won't call Medicare and Social Security socialism because they don't want to admit that they want to cut those things. So they won't go out to their voters and say, you are um, benefiting from the socialist program that the government has, Medicare and Social Security, right? Well, whenever it's something they don't like, it is the horrible socialism. Now, I was actually just talking about this. Uh, Producer Ben and I were just talking about this last night for some reason, very random. Um, but the conversation with this that always has to be had is us, like every other capitalist country, as we call them, is a mixed economy. There are some socialized aspects and some free market aspects. And so certain things like police, fire, military, um, and Medicare, Social Security should be socialized. Infrastructure should be socialized, meaning we all put money into a pool of money the government manages and spends on those things. And then the argument is, let's also include from people who are progressive like myself, healthcare, but that's all of a sudden socialism. So why is paying for roads not socialism, but paying for healthcare is socialism? Or if the job of police that we pay for collectively with taxes is to protect our lives, but our lives are gonna be lost because we don't have uh, coverage of our healthcare needs, why is that distinction one that they make? Um, and it's fine for you to say you don't believe in universal health care or whatever it might be, but don't pretend it's this principle against socialism and health care, um, you know, paid for by the government is socialism. So Hakeem Jeffries nicely, I think, summed up why this resolution of condemning the horrors of socialism is actually a dishonest ploy to distract from the fact that the Democrats actually have an agenda put forward. The Republican Party doesn't. It's all theater. President Joe Biden met with Kevin McCarthy to discuss the debt ceiling negotiation, the fact that the Republican Party is using the need to raise the debt ceiling as a chance to lever leverage their way into spending cuts. Here from NBC News, President Joe Biden met privately on Wednesday with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for more than an hour, their first in-person meeting since the Republican won the gavel. There were no signs of a breakthrough between the Democratic president and Republican speaker on the most consequential item on their mutual to-do list, preventing a debt ceiling breach and avoiding an economically uh, calamitous default later this year. And it really would be disastrous if the Republican Party continues to prevent the raising of the debt ceiling, which again is just allowing us as a country to follow through on our financial obligations, paying our bills essentially, not authorizing new spending. The new spending negotiation, if you wanna cut spending, that needs to happen when you're deciding on spending. And they're going through that debacle, that negotiation, when it's just time to pay the bills on things we've already spent. Here's Biden addressing this meeting. In ways different than we have, in my humble opinion. It's been the greatest honor of my life to serve this country. I know I don't look it, but I've done it for a few years. <laughs> a lot of good folks, not so good folks, great folks, and a lot of folks better than me. Let's just sort of kind of join hands again a little bit. 
Let's start treating each other with respect. That's what Kevin and I are going to do. Not a joke. We had a good meeting yesterday. I think we got to do it across the board. Doesn't mean we're going to agree and fight like hell. But let's treat each other with respect. So, um, they had a good meeting, he says. And to the hold, holding hands, getting along, respect, it's important that we recognize the humanity and value of every person, no matter how much we disagree. Sometimes, though, I think Biden and others who kind of have this, come on, guys, can't we just get along attitude, don't recognize as they should why the disagreement, why the division is there. Part of it is the media ecosystems we have and the introduction of social media into our political environment and all that, that is a little bit more artificial, but some of it really matters and we have real disagreements. And so I think that needs to be addressed too. How do we recognize the value of everyone and which absolutely should be done is absolutely necessary and learn to come to some sort of reasonable disagreement about fundamental differences that we have, if that makes sense. Because there's a difference between disagreeing and disagreeing on such fundamental things that it's hard to get along, as he would say, um, which I think would be great, but it's a little bit more complicated than just, let's just all have a good old time. Um, and then here's Kevin McCarthy talking about this meeting. Look, I think our first meeting was a good meeting. I don't, I don't want to put it in any false perspectives. We, we both have different perspectives on this, but uh, I thought this was a good meeting. We promised we would continue the conversation. We'll see if we can get there. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. I really do. Okay. Um, interesting. And then we'll look at one can other we put our clip here as well. We've got five more months. I've just walked out having an hour conversation with this president that I tell you in perspective was a good conversation. No agreements, no promises, except we will continue this conversation. I want to continue it on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the parents, on behalf of every taxpayer here, that we put ourselves on a trajectory that makes America stronger, secure, and balanced. Oh, man. Kevin McCarthy is similar to Mike Pence to, to me in the way that he's just a politician made in a politician factory where there's just nothing genuine there. That's the energy I pick up on. But good that they're in conversation, even though all the tactics by Republicans in the situation bother me to no end. If they can come to an agreement, that's better than them not. And so even if that means there's some concession, as long as it's not on crucial things like entitlements and Biden has to do some optical concession to get the debt ceiling raised, what's necessary is necessary. Very unhinged moment took place on uh, Fox and Friends with Dan Bongino. And I'm just gonna show it to you without much introduction. The point being made here is liberals are anti, wait, what are you thinking? Anti-capitalist, anti-republican, uh, anti-MAGA. No, anti-human. <laughs> anti-human. 
chaotic ourselves. So it, that's part of it. Believing humanity in and of itself is a problem. Therefore, let's get them to lock themselves up in the ideological yes. prison. Yes, exactly. It's the idea. Listen, just listen to the liberals talk. If, you, if, you, if you're not convinced what Will said is true about liberalism in essence being anti-human. Listen to the way they talk about people, deplorables, that, you know, the big smellies, the rednecks, the hayseeds, they talk about you like you're idiots because they see you as a proliferating virus that's a danger to this mother nature, you know, atheistic God they have, mother nature. And when you combine the fact that they are fundamentally anti-human, they see you as a virus with this very dangerous component, because that one thing is not gonna help without the next for them. The next part's critical. There's no emergency break on their behavior, unlike there is for us on the couch and me here. We believe in big R, God-given rights for everyone. It stops us from doing bad things to you liberals. Thankfully, we, we can't do that. God-given rights prevent us from doing that to you. You have to understand, the essence of liberalism is the opposite. They see you as a virus, and they see nothing getting in the way from stopping them to doing bad things. Remember, we think liberals are people with bad ideas, right? They think we're bad people with ideas. That's a totally different thing. That's why they never argue on principle. Principle doesn't matter. The hypocrisy doesn't matter to them. Everything to them is about power and subjugating this human virus. And when you- Oh my gosh. That is wild. We might even watch a little bit more of that in a second here. But what are you talking about? So many of the liberal views root from, sometimes to a fault, a care for human life. Sometimes people say you're getting too caught up in caring for the well-being of other people. That's a criticism. I've heard a lot of times when I'm debating a conservative, they say, oh, you just have too much of an emotional uh, attachment to helping people. And the argument I have to make is no, if we set up systems in a way that will end up helping everyone a lot more and raising up those who have a lot more um, difficulty financially or whatever it might be, that's going to allow all of us to live better lives, to have better communities. I have to argue for why I'm not too emotionally attached to the idea that human lives matter so much, which I am, but also the facts support what I'm saying, the data supports what I'm saying. And holy smokes, okay. This is how you get someone to be so dangerous. You tell them, as someone that a lot of people watch, Dan Bongino, he has a huge show. Um, he's on Fox and Friends here, but he has a huge show as well that the other side thinks you're a virus is anti-human and your life is threatened because of that. That is so dangerous. This is the calling to violence that we talk so much about. And he's saying the only thing that's preventing us from not doing really bad things to you is our belief in God. Well, some of your audience may not believe in God and then we'll go, oh, great. Hooray, it's my chance to be violent. That is so concerning. And then he's talking about the atheistic obsession with Mother Nature. I guess talking about our concern that our planet will be no longer livable if we don't act. That is out of a concern for human life. Human life is the thing that's in danger if climate change keeps going in the way that it's going. 
it is so backwards. And then he starts talking about individuals who are liberal not having principles, not being consistent and being hypocritical. I've met people all over the ideological spectrum who are illogical, who don't have principles, who are inconsistent. Yes. But in covering politics, one of the things you realize is, and I'll use as an example, the Biden document situation. In the modern political environment we're in, it is much more common for the whole of a side or the majority of a side to flip-flop when it comes to the right than the left, to be inconsistent in principle on the right. And what I mean by that with the Biden document situation versus Trump document situation, when the Trump document story broke, instantly most of the right or very prominent voices on the right jumped into defending him. They didn't care about the facts. It was just, this is a witch hunt. This is terrible. They did not want Trump to be held accountable. When the Biden document story broke, which is less severe, still, most of the prominent voices on the left go, hold them accountable, investigate it. That's because if our principle is, and again, I can't speak for all the left, and there are tons of illogical people on the left, holy smokes, for sure, but as a general um, pattern or which one is more common, the reason that that would be the response to the Biden document story, even though he's more on the side of liberals, is because if we're, I'll just speak for myself. I have a principle that I don't think classified documents should be handled incorrectly. So if Trump did it, hold him accountable. If Biden did it, hold him accountable. That's just an example. But that was one of the most wild rants. And let's just watch till the end. You listen to them talk. It is evident. And my chaos theory about it explains everything. That's why they love forcing chaos and fear on you for you to walk into their ideological prison and leave your civil liberties at the door. And they Wait, it's the left? who's forcing fear onto people coming from the side that has been telling us the horrible grooming LGBTQ plot is coming for your children. One of the most uh, heightened levels of fear mongering you can possibly do telling people their children are being targeted by the left. That is really, really dangerous. The word that keeps coming to mind. Holy smokes. Donald Trump did an interview with Hugh Hewitt and addressed the two individuals who are likely going to challenge him in the 2024 Republican primary. Nikki Haley, who reporting has showed she's definitely running. She's going to announce soon. And then, of course, Ron DeSantis. We don't know for sure if he'll run, but he's being floated a lot. And I'm going to show you these two moments and lots of interesting elements of this to discuss as well. So here is him getting asked about Nikki Haley. One of the people who is going to declare... And guys, I don't know what the heck is wrong with this audio uh, in this clip, but we're just going to have to deal with it. For president this month, according to reports this morning, is Nikki Haley. If she runs for president, what's your response, Mr. President? Well, she called me and she asked me about it, and I told her she should follow her heart. You know, she said numerous times, I put it up actually, that I would never run if our president runs. He was a great president, et cetera, et cetera. She said that numerous times, but she's a very ambitious person. She just couldn't uh, stay in a seat. I, I said, you know what, nigga, if you want to run, you go ahead and run. She's, you know, she's Earlier today, Larry Hogan, who's going to run, told me that if you are the nominee, he will support you. My question to you, Mr. President, if you're not the nominee, will you support whoever the GOP nominee is? It would depend. I would I would give you the same answer I gave in 2016 during the debate. The first question I was asked by... Right there. I was asked two rather, I was asked two rather interesting questions. Uh, it would have to depend on who the nominee was. 
Sometimes I do not understand how these shows that have huge audiences can't figure out their audio setup. Um, and the moment, of course, he was referring to where Nikki Haley says, if you could understand what he said. Actually, let me summarize in case you missed some of that because of the audio quality. Um, he was asked about Nikki Haley. He's saying that, listen, she can follow her heart. She can run if she wants to. But she did say if I ran, she wouldn't run, which you'll see her say here. He still has a lot of popularity. If he runs again in 2024, will you support him? Yes. If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run if President Trump ran. I would not run if President Trump ran, but she's going to run and announcing, I think it was February, somewhere in the, the teens of February, if I'm not mistaken, was when the reporting said she would be announcing. And then he addresses... Ron DeSantis and says that DeSantis came to him back when he was looking for Trump's endorsement with, and this is not me being silly. This is actually what you're going to hear Trump say with tears in his eyes. Wow. Take a look at this. He got elected because of me, just like Ron DeSantis, even more so, but even more so, but Ron DeSantis got elected because of me. You remember he had nothing. He was dead. He was leaving the race. He came over and he begged me, begged me for an endorsement. He was getting ready to drop out. I gave him an endorsement, and as soon as I gave that endorsement, in fact, I said, you're going to have a hard time. He was running against Adam Putnam, the commissioner of agriculture. He had a massive lead. He's been running for eight years while he was commissioner. He had $40 million in cash. I believe it was 40 And he was up in the poll massively by, you know, but not catchable, not even catchable. He said, if you endorse me, I'll win. And there were tears coming down from his eyes. He said, if you endorse me, I'll win. I'll say, you know what, Ron? Ron was one of 150 people. Okay. Um, that's really irritating my ear. Um, but tears were running down his face, were just gushing out of his eyeballs. Please, Trump, endorse me. Now, the interesting thing is, while I don't think Ron DeSantis was weeping, asking Trump for an endorsement, I do think he really needed that endorsement whenever he was running. He was a congressman and then he was running for uh, governor of Florida. And I do think Trump's endorsement carried him to his victory. Now, this most recent win was all uh, his own, but the initial win for the position of governor, I do think was because of Trump. And one of the reasons I know that is because Ron DeSantis was absolutely publicly licking the boots of Trump to try to become more popular in Florida with that cringy ad where he's saying, I'm teaching my kid to love Trump too. Look, I'm reading him a book about the wall or something. Um, very cringy stuff, but clearly he thought Trump's support was what he needed and that very much showed it. So interesting dynamic playing out. It's a very fun and fascinating to watch Trump and Nikki Haley and DeSantis and whoever else might jump in the race. Um, not that DeSantis or Haley are officially in it, but the people he thinks are going to be in it, that dynamic starting to be created that we'll get to watch over the next uh, just under two years. Very fun stuff. Lauren Boebert uh, spoke about guns and said that we need more guns in America and the percentage of the world's gun uh, total number that we own, which is 46% of the entire world's guns, even though we're, we're only 4% of the global population. That's not enough, she thinks. And um, here's what she had to say about that. 
decided to bring them into the oversight and accountability hearing so they could speak for themselves of why they should remain an agency in our federal government and not have the uh, appropriate features of their agency put under another, like the FBI, once we clean that out. But other than that, the Second Amendment, it is absolute. All the regulations that bureaucrats make, the laws that bureaucrats are trying to make, the unconstitutional laws that are passed by the federal government, the state legislatures, they make our country less safe. Gun-free zones are the most dangerous places in our country. The Second Amendment is absolute, and it's here to stay. A recent report states that Americans own 46% of the world's guns. I think we need to get our numbers up, boys and girls. I thank you so much, Mr. Clyde, for hosting. If there's one problem in regard to the United States and guns, it's not that we don't own enough of the world's total number of guns. Again, we're 4% of the global population and own 46% of all the guns that exist based on the report that she's citing. Now, what was she saying there? That the Second Amendment is absolute. That's just not true at all. If the Second Amendment was absolute, you should be able to get your hands on any arms under the sun, on any type of weapon that you would like to. Can you do that? Do you think every random person should have access to a machine gun or military grade drones or bombs of different sorts that the military has access to? No, that's absurd. A nuclear weapon? Do you think if you had the money and resources, you should be allowed to own your own personal nuclear weapon? Hey, you never know. I could... I'm just preparing for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> um, no, no one thinks that. So it's not absolute. Similar to how the First Amendment is not absolute. You can't say fire in a crowded theater. That's not protected, even though it's speech and we have free speech. There are borders. There are parameters to all of our rights. And we all understand that. And the Second Amendment is no exception. And so what's so wild is she's just advocating for an America that's even more unsafe than it already is in regard to gun violence. When you look at developed countries, when you look at similar wealthy nations to the United States and you compare, hmm, what's the main just blaring example, glaring example of um, the difference? The, what's the variable that is so different between the United States and these other comparable countries? Number one, we have a whole lot more gun violence and we have a whole lot more guns. Other countries have mental health problems. Other countries have violent video games. Other countries have all these different things, but they don't have the lax gun laws and the high gun ownership that we have. And so it's not saying let's take away your right to have a gun. No, it's saying let's put in reasonable common sense regulations that prevent individuals who shouldn't have guns from getting guns and let's not just flood our streets needlessly with guns but if you are a responsible gun owner you'll just may have to go through a little bit longer of a process to get it and then you'll get your gun it'll be absolutely wonderful and maybe you don't get a gun that's designed for killing as many people as possible in a military war setting seems reasonable to me and it's so clear that that is what is needed as CNN writes here, when you break it down, not us to other countries, which we just discussed, but uh, 
state by state in the United States. The study by Every Town for Gun Safety determined that California had the strongest gun laws in the country. Hawaii topped the list. Actually, wait, let me scroll a little further. Here we go. A study published in January by a leading nonprofit organization that focuses on gun violence prevention found that there's a direct correlation in states with weaker gun laws and higher rates of gun deaths, including homicides, suicides, and accidental killings. So states within the United States that have lax gun laws experience worse uh, gun violence. And that isn't even as valuable as an insight as it could be because our states are right, are right next to each other. There's no border that you can't cross. And so people go across and as we've talked about in the past, in states that have more heavily regulated gun realities, the guns that are used in crimes are disproportionately coming from other states that have more relaxed gun laws. And so if federally we had proper regulations, then we would experience less gun violence federally. She's pushing for the exact opposite reality, which is so enraging. Interesting piece out of Bulwark um, that outlines a poll they did with another pollster and shows us that while Trump's popularity is a lot less than it has been in the past, even among Republicans, it's still significant. And if you look back to 2016 and his popularity, then he's definitely able to win the Republican primary and even as horrible as this would be, uh, win the presidency once again. Here from the bulwark. The Bulwark North Star Opinion Research Poll is consistent with several other polls that have found Trump fading with voters and losing to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in head-to-head -head matchups. And then it walks through this. DeSantis leads Trump 52% to 30%, with 15% undecided and 3% uh, saying they would not vote if those were the only two options. And we've seen different polls. It's hard this far out. DeSantis hasn't even announced to get a real sense of what a matchup would look like. But across recent polling, showing Trump losing ground, he was holding on to anywhere from 28 to 38 percent of GOP voters. So, yes, a strong majority of GOP voters um, is ready to move on from Trump. On the other hand, here were Trump's margins in the 2016 early primary states, and it walks through how he only had kind of that third of the Republican electorate. Trump then went on to dominate the field in Nevada with 45.9 percent of the vote, and it continues to just outline that if he did it in 2016 with just a third of the vote, he could do it once again. Even more alarming for Republicans is that not all pluralities are created equal. For example, one question I was keen to answer with this poll is how many always Trumpers would follow Trump if he lost the GOP primary and launched an independent bid for president. And according to our poll, that 28% of Republican primary voters already locked in for Trump say they'll support him even if he ran as an independent in the general election 28 percent and um what's so fascinating about this is with that third of the republican electorate trump has a lot of power because people may say they support desantis but they're not saying i would support him no matter what even if he went third party and so the only way that trump would lose in a primary is if DeSantis put up a really good challenge and consolidated all of the Republican support behind him. But Trump has something that none of those people have, the threat 
of destroying the Republican Party in the election. Because if he loses the Republican primary, then run, uh, runs as third party, he would destroy the Republican Party's chances of being the Democratic Party because it would split the Republican vote. And so he has this tool that is very uncommon in politics, which is complete loyalty from a percentage of um, a party's base. And so what he will do with that, if he will threaten that to push other people out or to scare the Republican Party establishment away from the idea of throwing everything behind DeSantis is a fascinating prospect. And it shows you, as we talk about a lot, while the popularity of Trump has decreased, the relevance of him and the movement that he commands is very significant and that's very unfortunate. Let me know what you think, Luke Beasley Official on Instagram. Well, as you guys know, we went to the Trump South Carolina rally over the weekend. We, I mean, uh, producer Ben and I, and it was absolutely wild, bonkers. As I said on yesterday's show, I have done so many interviews now, and this was the wildest batch that I've done. So I have another moment for you. And this, as I teased yesterday, is the situation that took place where a physical altercation almost occurred, not between me and someone, but because of the, what would you call it? The screaming at me by someone, a different Trump supporter, as surprising as this is, came in to defend me. And that person and the person who was kind of making a bunch of noise almost got into a, a fight, essentially. And it was wild to see. So I will show you this kind of the build up to it and we'll discuss throughout. But I was chatting with this guy and then someone off camera started wanting to get involved. Reason for that. Do you believe the 2020 election was stolen? Uh, that's a good question. It really depends on your definition of stolen. Uh, do I think there was unconstitutional voter laws passed in the 2020 election that resulted in Joe Biden winning? Absolutely. Do I necessarily know for a fact that that was a result of like election fraud? Absolutely not. No, I can't verifiably prove that. But I think there was a lot of uh, <laughs> Not so uh, above above the water uh, actions that happened in the 2020 election. If you're not certain that voter fraud, mass voter fraud, whatever, the dead voters, all these different things we've heard caused Trump to lose, is it not dangerous for him to be saying that as if there was evidence for it? Was it dangerous when they said it I can interview after him if you like. Sure. Okay. So right there, initially he says, and he's standing right next to Ben, who was filming, which was right really... Right next to me. And for the longest time, he would just keep interjecting. I couldn't even hear anything. Yeah. Um, and so I said to him, if you want to interview next, that's great. Kind of alluding to the fact that I'll say more explicitly in a second, be quiet for now and then you can say whatever you want on camera um, so that this guy has his moment. But in this moment, he says, that sounds great. I would love to. Later, he <laughs> swears at me because I asked him again to come interview. Um, is that not dangerous and kind of causing people to not trust our democracy when he's not providing the evidence for the um, I, I think uh, good criticism of any system throughout this country is necessary. I don't think suppressing uh, any type of criticism, wrong or right, uh, is, is... Just one second. I'm going to get to you next. Just try not to be too loud. Don't tell me what to do. I have an opinion. All right. Sorry about that. It's not your Yeah. Um, I'm a to have an opinion. Okay. That's it. Oh, I thought you were so he was 
we'll say being rather disrespectful. And I got kind of upset at that point in time and didn't want to keep interviewing this guy if he was going to be standing there yapping in my ear. And so then, as you saw at the end, and we have much more where it gets more heated, I said, all right, you know what? We're You and me, let's stop talking. I want to come talk to this guy. And at that point, when it was actually his chance to say his opinion, as he said, he didn't want to. And he said no and started to kept swearing at me. He was very, very unhappy with the fact that I was trying to give him a chance to say what he wanted to say. Very strange. So then this individual said, well, I want to talk. Um, and he was very intent on the idea that we should be able to have open discussions, which I absolutely agree. And the individual off camera that you'll eventually see, Ben was trying to keep the camera on the interview, but eventually turned it, um, uh, continues being angry. And this individual comes in to defend me. You're talking about with our election processes? With our You gotta come interview if you're gonna be making all that noise. I wanna no, hear from you. No, be, be, hey, hey. See, this is the problem. No. No, it's okay. Guys, love. Positivity. It's right. Hey, guys, it's right. It's right. It's right. It's right. It's right. Listen, we're all Americans here and we love, like, it's, see, this is the problem. This is the problem. I'm with you. Like, so let's get I, I wish, like, people yeah. like you and me could sit and have these discussions That's why I'm here. without totally things agree. like this happening. 100%. Like, so, it, it's, so let me uh, answer your question. Yeah. That's absolutely an issue with the way that now social media plays a big influence on our life. So you can hear them going back and forth and we didn't catch the most intense part. I could see it out of the corner of my eye and Ben was <laughs> hearing it all go down. <laughs> In fact, like we were so focused on getting the interview shot. Every single time I would look over to my left, they were just in each other's faces, just going back and forth. It was insane. Yeah. And at one point they got nose nearly touching nose and were I thought about to fight each other which I was not loving the idea of me being the reason that two other <laughs> people got into a fight but um you'll see it continue in a second elections to me that needs to be addressed thought about social media companies need to figure out how they're going to regulate that that's different than the ballots not being secure if you know what I'm saying and so I have confidence in the ballots based on the evidence um are secure and that's good news for so did you get to see the people that like gathered the evidence did you get to look at the evidence yourself is that evidence open sourced is it on a blockchain where you can actually put everything together no you're still taking someone's credit you're still taking someone telling you something and you're believing in it unless you can see that so that code unless you can see the source itself unless I can go to a blockchain and I could track every single vote then you're still taking someone else's word for it you're still believing into someone saying hey hey trust me See, and this is the biggest. See, this is the biggest problem now. We need to have discussions like this, but there's always going to be like a subset of the population that's. So for our podcast listeners, it panned over to kind of the end after they had left apart. But what I overheard was something, something like you're gonna hit me or some some. It, it was fight. just a lot of curse words going back. <laughs> yeah, and oh, we're gonna. It felt like the kind of the build up to one of those strange fights that's over nothing. Oh wait, you're threatening me? You're threatening me? <laughs> um, to, to add on top of that, right behind me, as I'm recording, we're completely surrounded with a crowd of Trump supporters. Yeah, um, yeah, I'll explain that in a second. But uh, anyways, and then the end that I did here once I turned was, no, my blank is really big. Oh yeah, I don't care if it's big. <laughs> 
men are strange guys <laughs> i don't know why that's always where <laughs> fights go well my thing's bigger than yours <laughs> <laughs> um so that was unexpected but as ben said there what was strange about this particular event is usually we go to these huge rallies that Trump does. And so Trump supporters are walking into the rally and we'll stand outside. Hey, do you want to do an interview? And we'll stand here and people pass by and they'll glance, but they don't watch the interview or anything. With this, it was a Trump speech within the Capitol that they closed the door. And so there are just a bunch of supporters outside wanting to maybe see him if he came out to wave or wanting to show their support in other ways and just kind of standing there. And so it was probably a group of 150, 200 people. And, uh, so because of that, it wasn't that big of an area and everyone started picking up on the fact that this horrible liberal was there to interview people and a big ring got created where there was just this big right behind Ben. I kind of wish uh, Ben, you had turned around at one point, but they would all would have been like, ah, why is he filming us? Because <laughs> um, there was just this big crowd building watching <laughs> the interview and it was very, very strange, very unique experience. but. Wild stuff, and as I've been saying, just keep on checking in with these videos because so many from this event that were absolutely hard to even comprehend that they happened. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. We will see you tomorrow.